Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Well, you just may have heard that Elon Musk is buying Twitter, which has sent the whole media world aflame. But Twitter is more than a global social media service. It's also a deeply San Francisco company, headquartered right in the center of the city. Thousands of employees, past and present, live here. So what's the big Elon news mean for them and our metropole? And then we've got another Youth Takeover show, a panel of young women working to stop anti-Asian hate. That's all next. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Today we're talking about what Elon Musk's deal to buy Twitter means for the Bay Area and all those Twitter employees here. I have to tell you, I actually know I should have processed this news. I've been writing about Twitter and Elon Musk for 15 years, and um, man, my main impulse is that we need to talk about this. There are many tech companies here in the Bay Area. The greatest density of them, though, are in the Mid-Peninsula, down in the South Bay, Twitter is arguably the most San Francisco tech company, and now it's owned by a guy who absconded to Texas, at least in part because he doesn't like San Francisco-ness. So we've got some experienced reporters here to help us process what's happening, and we really want to hear from you. If you're a current or an ex-employee, what's, how you doing? <laughs> Do you live or work in mid-market near Twitter headquarters? What are your concerns, or maybe you're excited about this? You know the number. It's 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. And again, current Twitter ex-employees, gosh, we'd love to hear from you. Okay, here's the panel this morning. We're joined by Matt Honan, editor-in-chief at MIT Technology Review. Also, apropos this discussion, deeply San Francisco human who's been reporting on tech since, like, Mark Zuckerberg was in high school. Thanks for joining us, Matt. 
Thanks, Alexis. I, I think maybe he might have even been in middle school. But maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're right. We're getting old, man. We're getting old. Uh, we're also joined by Laura Waxman, a real estate and economic development reporter with the San Francisco Business Times. Welcome, Laura. Good morning. I love that we're all processing these news together. Right? I mean, that's kind of where that's kind of where I'm at. When you heard the news, Laura, what was the first thing you were thinking about? Well, of course, the the Twitter HQ on Market Street. I mean, that is my beat, the real estate beat. And there's always been question about what's going to happen with, um, you know, Twitter announcing remote work policies 100 percent a while ago. And um, I think this was just another kind of, whoa, what's what's happening next? Yeah. Matt Honan, how about you? I mean, you've been following Twitter for a long time. You've worked near mid-market before. Uh, when you heard the news and you were thinking, what does this mean for San Francisco? What were you thinking? I mean, you know, the, the question about what it means for mid-market, I think, is an interesting one because I'm I'm not convinced that Twitter had as nearly as profound an effect on mid-market as people thought it was going to. Like, certainly, like, I'm not convinced the city got a good deal from the tax breaks. Um, but you know, Twitter like is more than its headquarters. I think to San Francisco, I think there's a lot of like that, that blogging spirit and that um, you know that that kind of um, early internet uh, vibe that the companies that the companies maintained through all this time. And like those and like those those people, you know, the people are more important than the building. And like I would hate to see some of those uh, or a lot of those folks uh, leaving leaving the area. And you know, for those who aren't familiar with sort of Elon Musk's history with Twitter specifically. I mean, he's a big Twitter user, clearly loves the product of Twitter, but he's for a while taken umbrage with the way that Twitter has been managed, right? Yeah, it seems that way, right? And, and uh, I mean, I think that's because Elon uh, is, you know, kind of a classic troll, right? Like he uh, <laughs> he loves to, he, I mean, hey, look, who doesn't love to troll Twitter, right? Like it can be fun and you get a lot of reaction. I mean, I, I, it's 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 the kind of thing that, you know, you, you you type a little thing in your in your phone, and all of a sudden it blows up. And he clearly loves that, right? And uh, he's talked about the ways that Twitter is overly, you know, inf- I, I think I think he he would even use the word censoring um, speech, um, uh, which I don't I don't you know I don't know. And and he wants to move it to where it's just anything that's legal is allowed on the platform. I mean, if you love to troll, I guess you want to do that. But I think for a lot of us who view it. Um, who view it as is you know something where that they've really just kind of turned the corner on trust and safety stuff in the last couple of years that this is a step backwards. Yeah. We're going to talk more about that a little bit later, but Laura, I wanted to go back to this time when Twitter was beginning to set up shop uh, in mid market. I mean, I think it was back in 2011 when they signed that deal. So it's actually been been quite a while. As Matt mentioned, got a big tax break from the city under the kind of implicit threat that they were going to leave San Francisco. Uh, what sort of happened since they agreed, okay, we're going to move in there? Right. So if you remember, if you were here, I I was as well. And Twitter um, at that time had considered moving out of San Francisco to, I think it was San Mateo County. And um, so the tax break was kind of an effort directed at Twitter to keep them, not only keep them in the city, but also kind of create a cluster of companies in mid-market um, you know, the thinking being that if someone like Twitter stays, other companies will follow and um, revitalize that area. I was looking at numbers earlier, and I think uh, right before the Twitter tax break, one in three storefronts on mid-market, in the mid-market area were vacant. So that was an issue, um, and I, mid-market obviously has struggled with that for a long time and continues to struggle with vacancies at this time. Yeah. Do you agree with Matt that Twitter's impact on mid-market 
perhaps fell short of what city leaders were hoping. Yes, I th- I wrote about an audit. I think that was 2019. Um, the years are kind of meshed together now with the pandemic. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, you <laughs> Who know, knows? sometime before the pandemic. Um, yeah. <laughs> I know there was an audit. There were probably several. Um, but I I remember just reporting on that um, at the time, and um, there was some disappointment there from from city leaders. You know, because uh, there were community benefits baked into, um, you know, this tax break, this program. And there were, there were really no ways of, of enforcing them. And I think that was one of the takeaways um, of how the tax break failed. That area, you know, failed San Francisco's because the the, the safeguards weren't, the, it it had no teeth, mm. you know, in, in that sense. And um, it did, I, I believe, um, revitalize the area. You know, it did bring Zendesk and other companies into mid-market. Um, <clears throat> but, but did it have the effect? I don't know. Um, Twitter built a cafeteria. <laughs> that was a big issue at the time as well, because if you want to revitalize an area, you need to send people out into the streets. <laughs> you need to send people into the coffee shops. Maybe the bars did well, you know, with after hour happy hours, but um, I don't think it shook out the way it was it was planned. Yeah. You know, it's funny, Matt. We People outside of San Francisco in particular think of San Francisco as a tech town. Yeah. But, like, if you look at the companies that were in, like, San Francisco that were big and important companies. I mean, it was really more Bank of America, Visa, Bechtel. Like, they, they, it was not a tech town, really, with big, you know, publicly listed tech companies uh, of the kind that we think of, you know, the Silicon Valley startup type, really, until Twitter and Salesforce, yeah? I think that's right. I mean, I think there was, you know, there were a lot of... Uh smaller companies that were here. I think there was there was like this whole scene going on around South Park out of like, you know, companies like Adaptive Path that were, uh, that you know, that, but they tended to be smaller. You know, I mean, it was like, it was like Twitter and, and before Twitter, Odeo, its predecessor and, um, you know, the like just six apart, those types of companies that were, that were, you know, not the, not the giant firms that we think of. Um, and so, I mean, I do think that Twitter had a, like a, you know, an effect that, that helped make it kind of okay for more companies to be here. I don't know if it had as much of a, nearly as much of an effect as Salesforce or like Google opening offices here. Um, it's, you know, it's still, you know, compared to those companies, a pretty small uh, company in terms of, of number of employees. Like, it, you know, they don't touch, uh, a, you know, a Google or a Salesforce. Um, but I do think it changed San Francisco's tech scene. Like when you think about, uh, when I think about the first dot-com boom, like that was happening in the peninsula, you know, mm-hmm. and you know, after Twitter, it did feel like it was a lot more of a tech town. Yeah. Like Instagram, I mean, you... Instagram came out of the same building. They were working in a Twitter, like when they started, they were working in one of Twitter's conference rooms. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, it, it did have a, you know, it did have an effect on the city's tech scene. Yeah, I mean, you just sort of expected if you were going to work in tech, I think you might live in San Francisco, but you'd sort of do that great migration of the like young nerds down 101 <laughs> into the peninsula and, and the South. I mean, it, it just, that's how it worked. Uh, and it seemed like one of the major advantages of Twitter was, you know, these are people, it, it captured the kind of employees who not only wanted to work in tech, but who wanted to live in San Francisco. Yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, I mean, a lot of them, uh, a lot of them still do. I mean, including, you know, including Jack Dorsey. Um, uh, Jason Goldman uh, is, is, lives in San Francisco, is pretty, pretty active in, you know, local affairs. Um, you know, I mean, I think if you remember, they were they were pretty like the company was pretty involved with uh, Ed Lee. Like there were a lot of folks who were on his, um, you know, who who were working to get him elected, reelected. Uh, and they've, you know, I feel like they've been they've they've tried to be a part of the city. I mean, it, it, you know, whether or not the tax breaks wind up being worthwhile and 
like I, I don't know, do you remember this? There was there was like ridiculous stuff about one of the community benefits was they were doing yoga um, <laughs> at at the Twitter office or something. I don't know. It was for, some, the, for the community. I think for the community. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but but I'm actually into that. Um, right. But, okay. Yeah, hey. Fair you know, enough. But I, I understand I, it's a very San Francisco sounding <laughs> idea. Right. But I, you know, I mean, but they but they they definitely have been part of the of the San Francisco community, and for better or worse, they've they have transformed the city. Laura, did you want to follow up on that? I just wanted to say I hear they have pretty nice offices, so you know I'm, <laughs> sure, I'm sure it's nice going in there and doing yoga or catching a view. Yes, that's true. And we, you know, one of the things that could maybe an optimistic scenario here, because we don't really know what Elon Musk is going to do with this company, is he, you know, in the run up to buying the company, tweeted about how the Twitter employees did not go into the office. So you could actually imagine a scenario, I think, where. Elon Musk says, we're back in the office all the time, and suddenly mid-market's got a lot more people, no? Right. So I was actually riffing with Osaurus about that the other day, um, just kind of picking his brain, and um, he's, in, he's in the broker community. And, you know, that, that seemed to be more what, what he was thinking, that, um, you know, if, if employees do come back to that building, I mean, that would be, first of all, great for that neighborhood, you know, um, for obvious reasons. But also great for the city because it would kind of um, kind of set a tone. <laughs> mm-hmm. It would it would set a standard. And um, what I even just covering real estate for the past two years have seen is that it seems that um, some of the startups and the smaller companies that are getting their their start and their roots in San Francisco kind of look to the big guys to see what they're doing. And sure. so um, I think that would be you know a, a great sign for the economy. We're talking about Elon Musk's deal to buy Twitter and what it means for the Bay Area and Twitter's many, many employees here. We're joined by Laura Waxman, real estate and economic development reporter for the San Francisco Business Times, and Matt Honan, editor-in-chief of MIT Technology Review. We really would love to hear from some of you Twitter employees out there. might be a little scary at the moment, but if you're a current or former Twitter employee, how do you think Elon Musk's ownership will change how Twitter works and its mission and maybe even its role in San Francisco. You can give us a call 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're KQED Forum. You can email, still exists, still works, forum at kqed.org. And also, if you've been around mid-market, if you lived or worked there, we'd love to hear from you too about what you think uh, could change in the neighborhood because of these Twitter changes. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about what Elon Musk's deal to buy Twitter, assuming it all goes through, means for San Francisco and the Bay Area. We're joined by Matt Honan, editor-in-chief of MIT Technology Review, and Laura Waxman, a real estate and economic development reporter for the San Francisco Business Times. We're going to get some of your calls and comments here. Uh, Matt, can I throw this one to you? Uh, Listener tweets... I go back and forth with Elon Musk, but within hours of the announcement that he was going to officially buy Twitter, a few followers in his thread started doing that thing, like how Twitter was a year ago. Stalkers with lots of sexist, racist posts in their handles. I'm worried I've heard so many different perspectives. Some are saying he wants to clean up the algorithm, which will tamper, like tamp down the far-right propaganda. Others say he's offended by things people say to him on Twitter and he doesn't like it. What do you think? I mean, it's kind of a, a question about Twitter, the product, <laughs> and whether Elon Musk is really going to change it, and if so, how that will map onto politics. You know, the the thing that I think is interesting is is he is like just an incredible product person, clearly, right? Like he's he's got this great track record of 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 making incredible products, making sure that they do really well, and he could you know he could be end up be doing incredible things for the product. Uh, some of the stuff that he's been talking about, um, I've heard people in Twitter internally say they're already working on. Um, but I think you know a lot of the stuff. It's just like we're not going to know, and we're not going to we're not going to see until he gets there. I personally think that um, my view is that the content moderation bit of this is going to be a lot harder than he's anticipating. Um, I, I think that you know there are going to be you know there there's a story today about about uh you know twitter sending an email to advertisers assuring them that things can be brand safe you know 44 billion dollars even for a guy like Elon Musk is a lot of money and if twitter becomes you know just a toxic stew of you know you know just the worst kind of you know racist and sexist and horrible uh comments advertisers aren't going to want to be associated with that and you know, that's, that's their prob- business. That's their business. <laughs> that's their actual yeah, business. That's right. their actual business. Yeah, and you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm signed up for Twitter Blue, which is the uh, the paid version of Twitter. But I'm signed up for it largely out of novelty because my job is to kind of understand things that are happening with tech products. I don't know that I would pay for it mm-hmm. um, if uh, you know if if I was um, you know if I wasn't if I if I didn't feel like I needed to for my job. And I think that, you know, if, if his idea is that, okay, well, we're going to make it just a, a, a free-for-all with speech and people will pay to be there, I'm not sure that's true. Um, and I'm also not sure that, you know, no matter what, you know, they're reassuring uh, kinds of things they're saying to advertisers, um, that those will pan out. If, if, you know, if an advertiser is like, okay, yeah, well, maybe my, my tweet isn't adjacent to, a, to some, you know, horrible ISIS beheading, which is legal, um, but that ISIS beheading is three tweets over like are they st- are they really going to be there you know that I don't know that, that makes much of a difference um, so there's a yeah. lot to, there's a lot there's a lot to, to like unpack there once he gets in yeah uh, friend of mine friend of the show Robin Sloan had this line where he I'm just going to quote it here 
Uh, Musk's substantial success launching reusable spaceships does nothing to prepare him for the challenge of building social spaces. The latter calls on every liberal art at once, while the former is just rocket science. And I actually, I, I think there's a lot of, lot of truth in that. Um, let's bring in our first caller, um, Marshall in San Jose. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm a former Twitter employee. I was in the marketing department overseas, um, and it's been pretty disappointing to watch all of this. And just in terms of getting a taste of what an Elon Musk-owned Twitter will look like, I mean, if you if you look at the two executives he's really laying into, um, the second after he bought the company, it's the Indian-American CEO and the chief general counsel, Vijaya Gaddy, and both incredibly well-respected people within Twitter. Um, and he's circulating memes, basically publicizing her and her inaction on doing anything to fix the platform. She's now facing, like, death threats and online harassment. And this is bizarre behavior. And I think it's very odd that, he, um, that Jack, the former CEO, has not really stepped out to say anything about it. In fact, kind of relegating himself to silence while Dick Costolo, the previous CEO, is now publicly out there defending um, the Twitter executive team. And so I think it's really just a mess in terms of, um, A, showing us how he plans to operate, and B, who specifically he's going after when he does mm -hmm. this. So um, I just wanted to put that out there. Yeah, Marshall, great. Um, that is really a great question. I think th the way I would put this to you, Matt, is can a troll be the CEO of a company? <laughs> like, can can those two things, like a, a social media company? Because obviously yeah, a troll can right. be a rocket ship company right. CEO, but a social media company. Right. I mean, so I, I'm um, like I'm unsure uh, what uh, I, I can't I can't say what what he said on the air. But when I was at BuzzFeed News, like an email that he sent us was just it was just you know that his, Elon Musk sent you that Elon Musk sent us was just was just two profane words you know back to back, um, and um, you know I, I I don't know that he I don't I don't know that that's going to work out really well. The the going back to Marshall's point about Vidya, she is uh, you know I've, I've Known her for a long time, been covering Twitter for a long time, and there's there's basically no one at Twitter who enjoys the uh, respect and you know admiration that she has. And what Marshall said is tracks with what I've heard from employees there that people are outraged internally that um, that he's gone after her. People are outraged that Jack Dorsey hasn't come to her defense. Uh, one person was telling me that the outrage is is particularly acute on. Um, you know, on some of the teams that he's going to need the most on the on the legal team, on the trust and safety team, um, and it it just seems like a really, uh, you know, like a like a like a it it just seems like a dumb thing to do. Like, why would you alienate so much of that workforce before you even walk in the door? Maybe trolling works, you know, if you're trying to get people to buy a car, but I don't know that it works if you're trying to get people to participate in your in your communications platform. Yeah. Hey, Marshall, if you were still there, what would you do? Uh, in terms of if I was still at the company? Yeah, if you, if you were still, if you're still a Twitter employee right now, Elon Musk buys the company. Like, what, do, what are you doing? I mean, I, first of all, I would I, I lead an internal, like, a team, and like, a, a rebellion, essentially, to get him to define what, what is it that he wants changed. Like, there is, this is literally like the Occupy Wall Street thing. He's, he's all about free speech and less moderation and more America. Um, like, what is he even talking about? Like, let's what's his bill of rights? Like, let's get him to define what he'd like to change so we can understand, like, what it is we're dealing with. I think 
the media could help with that as well. I mean, it's really just this ball of kind of memes and, and jargon right now. And, and I think the world is trying to figure out what exactly does he want to get done with this platform. My last point about the open sourcing of the algorithm, Jack's been talking about that for seven years. This is not new. Um, so in regards to that, that's just rehashed kind of stuff. So that, that yeah. would be my point, um, yeah. Alexis. Thanks so much, Marshall. I love that. A ball of memes and jargon. But, you know, who isn't these days, you know? Uh, we're, we're talking about Elon Musk's deal to buy Twitter and what it means for San Francisco and the Bay Area with Matt Honan, editor-in-chief at MIT Technology Review, and Laura Waxman, real estate and economic development reporter for the San Francisco Business Times. We're just talking with Marshall, former employee at Twitter. If you want to call in and let us know what you think as a current or former uh, Twitter employee. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Let's get uh, another call. This one's coming to you, I think, Laura Waxman. Uh, Brian in Berkeley, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, I'm concerned about mid-market. I'm CEO of Lighthouse for the Blind. We're a 120-year-old organization, and we chose to uh, locate our headquarters two blocks from Twitter in 2014 partly because of these community benefit agreements that Twitter and other companies signed with the city in exchange for 10 years of a payroll tax holiday worth millions of dollars to them. No company has been stingier than Twitter. Uh, A few years ago, I looked at the community benefit agreement, and they had $60,000, a $44 billion company, $60,000 to benefit the community around. Mm -hmm. That community, there's probably no starker contrast in the United States between the poverty and, and awful human condition on the street there in mid-market and the billions of dollars happening in, in Twitter. I really hope that whatever happens with the Twitter building, we really try to prioritize a meaningful community benefit agreement that has that has uh, significant amounts of support for the nonprofits mm-hmm. who are there in mid-market. Yeah. Brian, I have to tell you, I think there's no one I would like to negotiate with less <laughs> as a nonprofit leader than Elon Musk, perhaps. Um, I, it's, it's, it's a tough one to, to imagine. Uh, Laura Waxman, can you talk to us a little bit more? You mentioned it briefly uh, about this community benefits agreement and you know, it has been controversial, uh, and obviously Brian is uh, telling us why from the perspective of local organizations. Right. Um, Brian, I, th- I feel like we've met before, <laughs> but um, great to hear from you, and you know, I would love to hear more just what it's like on the ground now um, being in mid-market. But yeah, I mean, that's just you know, anecdotally, obviously, what I've been hearing, too, that um, not just Twitter, but just a lot of these companies didn't quite fulfill their, their commitments, and um, the city just did not put in place... Um, you know, these these uh, safeguards or, or just put teeth into this program in order to hold them accountable. And um, so, you know, as as Brian said, the conditions in mid-market, you know, while there has been more foot traffic, there has been more inv- investment from both the companies and the people who live there now, um, it still isn't quite where it needs to be. And I think the pandemic obviously has made it much worse. Um, you know, I, I believe there was a, a bit of a boom Pre-pandemic, and um, there was some there were some new uh, hotels opening and new uh, stores opening. But now, obviously, all of that is is kind of uh, thrown into question. The, the future of that area. Yeah, uh, Matt, listener Marsha writes. I read today there may be complications relative to the completion of the purchase of Twitter. These were noted as Tesla stock decreased, making it less likely that Musk has the money. 
The breaches with employees at Twitter was written into the contract of purchase that he was not to be abusive and the SEC case loss. You know, I think the the thread I want to pull on out of this uh, comment, Matt, is there have been maybe not so much from the inside, but from from particularly people of color outside Twitter. A lot of people have, have said, like, man, what is it like to be a black person inside Twitter um, as Marshall mentioned, you know, there are two Indian American executives who've been you know, targets of nasty tweets and trolls by Elon Musk already. Um, are you hearing anything about that? Because there have there's been organized um, employee resource groups inside Twitter for a long time. What I, I haven't uh, specifically um, about being a black employee about inside Twitter. I have heard about being a woman inside Twitter. Um, Another person who he uh, who he kind of went after as basically as a reply to a tweet, tweet is their uh, CMO, um, who's who's also a, a woman, and so two of the you know three people who have and, and, and who've been singled out have been women, um, and there's been you know I I've I, I can't get into it exactly as it was you know I can't get into the discussion but it was it there's there's been concern as I as I understand it about that. Um, and certainly I think that if you look at the environment around his tweets, you know, it's not just what he tweets, it's what his many millions of followers do in reaction to his tweets. Um, he's pouring, he, you know, he's pouring, uh, or he's putting out a lot of fuel that, that yeah. people can, that people can light on fire. And there has been, there is definitely been concern inside Twitter about that and when, what he's, what the effect he's going to have on those employees will be. Let's bring in Dylan from Sunnyvale. Welcome, Dylan. Thanks. I just wanted to kind of join up your comments about advertisers with what Marshall and others said about harassment. I think we found with when Trump was on Twitter, on Fox News, like advertisers are okay being next to content that sounds intellectual but actually directs harassment at, you know, especially at women or women of color. Or, and so it's pretty disturbing to see Elon going into that himself. And I, I think it's a really bad sign for what would happen to Twitter under his control, that it could be more of a Trumpian like vehicle for harassment. Right. I mean, I think that is one of the big questions, you know, when I've been talking with people about this. There's just the Trump question. Does Elon Musk bring, bring Trump back onto the platform? Um, wh- what do you think, Matt? Well, I mean, Trump says he's not coming back either way, but uh, he's he's also got his own thing that he's trying to promote. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I I think that I think that if uh, it, it just seems like such a natural move for him to do it, uh, for Elon to bring to, to 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 offer to let Trump back, you know, if if he's serious about um, you know about some of the things that he said about free speech, it would seem like that's that's kind of a natural place for him to go. Um, I mean, it was, you know, it was incredibly controversial uh, when Trump was kicked off, um, despite everything that was going on, uh, you know, despite the fact that people have been calling for him to be kicked off for years. Uh, but Elon is, is you know, I mean, the, the thing is, Alexis, like, who knows, right? Like, the thing about <laughs> Elon, like, the one thing we really, really know about him is is the guy is just a complete wild card, right? Like, he like he, he loves chaos, or seemingly loves chaos, seems loves to create chaos. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and is that, like, the, the most, that's certainly one of the most chaotic things he could do. Uh, but you know, he also he also may decide that he wants to make it a nice, safe place where we just talk about you know bunnies all day. <laughs> I mean, you, you just don't know. You know, I think the other big unknown, at least to me, having followed you know platforms for for a long time, 
is, you know, if it was easy to make a social platform do the things that people wanted it to do, who are the executives of the company, then like the social media space would look a lot different. You know, like it, what people do at the top end and with the software and with the way the product works doesn't map easily or, you know, cleanly onto what the people actually do with that thing. And it certainly doesn't map cleanly onto like left-right politics, even if people are, are are trying to make it do that. So I think there's some gonna could be some very interesting things. Okay, one quick uh, last call, Sean in Oakland. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you very much. I heard uh, Musk taking over Twitter. Now it's going to be called Mutter. But anyway, um, my my um, my point is that why is this so important? Um, you know, it, it really bothers me not being a Silicon Valley person, but living in the Bay Area for so long that that follower numbers are all important. But it's my understanding that people that follow these things say that follower numbers are virtually meaningless these days. Yet you get reputable news organizations like NPR, like the New York Times, like Washington Post, talking about follower numbers of politicians or whoever, but there's no asterisk there saying actually minus 60% of that is not actually people, you know, um, <laughs> you know, the, the, I heard that the likelihood that an, an account being assigned to Facebook right now as an actual person is down to 1%, you know, but yet we're, this is all important, you know, as if it's some bastion of fact and, and, uh, and truth. And, you know, of global consciousness, I think, was, uh, was Jack yeah. Dorsey's quote. Yeah. The light of global consciousness. There we consciousness. go. Yeah. 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 Anyway, you know, Sean, it's uh, a, it's a, I no, it's a, it's a good point, and I think one of the things it points out, um, which I will, I'll, I will take to to Laura actually, is like the the real world really still does exist, right? And there, this world of Twitter and the way that it has played into San Francisco is um, is really complex and complicated, and nothing is going to change that quickly, right? We have one last uh, question from Curtis, which was. Uh, or, or sorry, from Sylvia. Do you think it's possible Musk will move Twitter to Texas? Do you know anything about the real estate situation for Twitter that would make that difficult, Laura? Yes, um, such great insight. I'm, I'm like learning so much right now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so Twitter. It was interesting. I reported last year that they actually took out an office in Oakland, um, which was seemed to be kind of the trend for companies doing that. You know, opening up satellite offices close to where their workforce lives because it's a little bit more affordable in the East Bay. And, um, you know, you don't have to commute. So that was the trend. And then they um, also just very recently, about six months ago, renewed um, a lease for two of their floors at their, their Market Street headquarters. And they also expanded into a third floor. So I don't really know what the terms are of that lease renewal, but I'm assuming they have at least another five to seven years um, because of that at this yeah. building. Wow, that's good. That is some good information. Thank you uh, so much. We've been talking about Elon Musk's deal to buy Twitter, what it means for San Francisco, the Bay Area, and, and the service itself, the app people love to hate. We've been joined by Laura Waxman, real estate and economic development reporter for the San Francisco Business Times. Thanks for joining us, Laura. Thank you. It was so much fun. <laughs> also been joined by Matt Honan, editor-in-chief at MIT Technology Review. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you, Alexis. Stay with us for more Forum after a short break.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. It is, as you probably know if you're a regular listener, Youth Takeover Week here at KQED, where we work side by side with aspiring journalists from across the Bay Area. And this morning, we have a panel of Asian American youth artists and activists who know the power of media images and art to influence change and are using it to push back on Asian stereotypes and anti-Asian hate. This segment was produced, produced by Catherine Ho, a student at Crystal Springs Upland School, a member of KQED's Youth Advisory Board, and also our first guest here today. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Hi, I'm glad to be here. I'm so glad to have you here. Catherine, I was, what first got you interested in wanting to do this particular segment? Um, well, what first got me interested was, I remember when I was younger, I watched a lot of shows on TV and Disney Channel, and I never really saw actors and people who looked like me. And it wasn't such a big deal to me then, and I didn't really notice like that lack of Asian representation. Like that that was such a significant issue until I got older. Like when the movie Crazy Rich Asians came out and it was such a big deal, it truly showed that Asians like being the leads in films and having that representation wasn't normal. And it sparked a lot of conversation about how more representation is needed and there's still so much more progress that needs to be made. Um, And then that especially combined with the pandemic, seeing a lot of anti-Asian hate crimes in San Francisco and um, across the United States, it made me like very worried about my safety and my family's safety. my relative safety, like, is it safe out there? Like, are we in danger? And we shouldn't be in that position to have to worry about that. And when more attention was brought to Asian American Pacific Islander movements, like seeing people stand up for our community and having that voice um, is what really inspired me. And for years, I've been really passionate about social justice work and advocacy. So I wanted to really shine a light on Asian American representation. Um, you know, be inspired by a few activists that are sharing their voice and encouraging people to um, use their voice and stand against like stereotypes. And um, often, like Asians are seen as being really quiet and not speaking up. Um, so I feel like this topic is really important to me um, to see my culture represented on the screen. Um, and that they can have the chance to speak from their own experiences and share their stories um, and their culture. 
And I know that gives me a lot of pride seeing more representation on the screen um, and knowing that it serves and is an inspiration to a lot of people. Yeah. Well, let's meet some of these inspiring voices. Uh, joining us now, we've got Ashlyn So, a teen fashion designer and activist here in San Francisco. Welcome, Ashlyn. Hi, thank you so much for having me. We've also got Alyssa Montiagudo. She's the co-founder of So She Can, a youth-led organization educating and empowering women of color. Welcome. Hi, I'm so thankful to be here. Yeah, we're so glad to have you both on. This is an all-youth panel. It's very exciting for us. Um, Ashlyn, let's start with you. How did your passion for fashion design develop? Um, so I started my fashion design journey when I was around six years old. Six um, years old? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. So I was actually really interested in like the concept of sewing when I was in preschool. Um, and so when I was six, I kind of wanted to get back into that. And I wanted to kind of, um, you know, explore that um, in my own ways because I left, you know, the preschool. So I asked my mom if I could go to a sewing class. And she said yes. So I just fell in love with fashion and, you know, designing and creating something new. And I just loved, you know, kind of being able to create something and there's like no limits, you know? I love that about fashion. Yeah. And how do you actually do your designs? Like, are you drawing by hand? Do you use software? Like what's your, what's your way of sort of getting those ideas onto the page? Um, so I usually like, you know, first kind of get some inspiration. So I would like kind of look at, you know, everyday objects and like the things around me. And I would be able to, you know, kind of come up with some ideas in my head and kind of put them, you know, yeah, sketch them out. And usually like, you know, these ideas come out like spontaneously, like, you know, like right before bed or like, <laughs> you know, like in the shower or somewhere, just like random and I would like you know have to like quickly sketch it out so I kind of like remember it for later yeah speaking as a dad it seems like my kids have all their best ideas right before bed right when they're supposed to be going to bed they seem to have (laughs) so many good ideas for some reason um so in addition to designing clothes you've referred to yourself as an accidental activist uh how'd that happen um so I yeah so what basically happened was you know during the start of, you know, like the rise of the anti-Asian attacks happened, that was when, you know, it was getting a lot of media coverage and I was kind of being able to actually see it on screen for the first time. And when I saw that, it was just like really hitting home because, you know, I've never seen anything like this before. And it was just like, it, you know, made me think of like my family and, you know, you know, these people um, and their families who, who got, you know, they basically, you know, lost someone in their family. And it's just a very, like, it just like made me think of them. And, um, and I thought that, you know, I had to do something because, you know, this, these were like, you know, my people getting hurt and um, I really wanted to do something about it. So I decided to organize like my first rally, you know, I wanted it to be like something like small. And like, I thought it'd be like something like local and just like, I thought maybe like a hundred people would show up, but you know, there was like at max and, and like, you know, hundreds more showed up and I was just like shocked at the 
diversity and you know the amount of kids there too there were like kids elders families and of all different types of races and ethnicities and I was just I loved you know I loved that because they were able to expose you know their kids to this culture where we're able to kind of you know fight for what we want and you know, make our voices heard. So and that's why I kind of call myself an essence activist because, <laughs> you know, I never intended, you know, I never said that you know, I wanted to be an activist. But, you know, now that um, I was able to step in this space, I'm really happy that I yeah. did. And you even did a special collection inspired by Stop Asian Hate, right? Yeah. Um, so during, uh, yeah, September of 20, yeah, 2021, I did my um, New York Fashion Week collection, um, and it was inspired by, yeah, the Stop Asian Hate movement, and I really wanted to highlight, you know, how this movement kind of came to be, and how, you know, it started with a small group of people, and it turned into this mass movement, so, like, you know, in the collection, you know, you can, it's, like, you know, white and uh, blue inspired by porcelain to kind of highlight, you know, the Asian American culture, and then, a lot of the designs are, um, uh, yeah, so like the collection is called Beneath the Surface and it's kind of inspired by how we're looking beyond just a skin color and we're looking at, you know, what's actually deep within and who you really are. And so like, you know, like the, the uh, I had the cage pants where you could like see through and it was kind of showing how you were kind of looking into, you know, um, looking beyond on just a skin color and looking at who you really are. Mm. So I kind of wanted to show that throughout the entire collection. Wow. We're talking with Asian-American youth who are using art and activism to push back against Asian hate. You've been listening to Ashlyn So, a teen fashion designer and activist. We're also joined by Catherine Ho, student at Crystal Springs Upland School, member of KQED's Youth Advisory Board, and producer of today's segment as part of Youth Takeover Week. We'd love to hear from you. Do you have questions for these incredible young people on our panel about their experiences and, and what they're working on? Does any of what they're sharing resonate with you? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's KQED Forum. Or you can use that email, forum at kqed.org. Alyssa Montegudo, co-founder of So She Can, also joins us. It's a youth-led organization educating and empowering minority women. And I wanted to uh, hear from you. How did this this brand, So She Can, uh, form? Yeah, great question. So I... During the pandemic, I think so many youth were feeling very hopeless and overwhelmed for me being in high school. Um, high school is a really turbulent time without going through a pandemic and virtual learning. But being thrusted into this, I think me and many of my friends um, felt like our mental health was not in a very good state. And the negativity um, really tended to persist in our thoughts. And so I was feeling quite down and um I really wanted to take action on how my own perception and mindset uh, was going about things. And I started seeing online that so many organizations were creating content to uplift and empower youth voices. I saw that so many people around my age were doing things to um, to take action during this time when it felt like we couldn't maybe do as much or do the regular things that we were used to. And so seeing the impact 
and actions that other youth were doing really inspired and motivated me to create my own organization that specifically focused on bringing light issues to marginalized communities. So many times in the media, we see that the voices of BIPOC women are miscued or um, the full truth or story isn't shown. So I really wanted to use So She Can as a way to highlight these issues that might not be as mainstream, but are definitely important to focus and showcase. And a lot of the inspiration for So She Can also comes from my background in working with the nonprofit, the Asian American Organizing Project. Hmm. I'm from Minnesota. And so the Asian American Organizing Project is a local nonprofit that works in um, St. Paul and Minneapolis area on political engagement, community organizing, specifically within Asian youth. And so I was doing a summer program with them and learned so much more about Um, community organizing, what activism means, grassroots organizing, uh, things like critical race theory, what exactly political engagement means in our community, and learning about all those things that we don't tend to, like our normal school subjects don't focus on, really opened my eyes to a lot of the inequities in our society, but also the solutions and things that people are doing to help solve them. And so that's kind of that combination is where So She Can formed. Yeah. So, you know, when you say that representations of BIPOC women are skewed, what do you think gets left out of those uh, media depictions? Yeah, I think a lot of the time we tend to focus on really large achievements. And as much as it's very empowering to see the achievements of women, I would love to have learned more about what their challenges were or um, how they were able to reach that point. You know, a lot of things, a lot of times you see things like, uh, wow, the first um, Asian American to do this or the first um, black female to be a CEO of this company, which are all amazing things. But I think what I wanted for So She Can was to dig deeper into how each of those stories came about. Um, And so sharing the story behind things is also a really big tenet of what the organization aims to do. Um, And so I think a lot of what we see, we don't really see uh, the challenges and barriers that those women are facing and also the different societal perceptions and how that affected their own journey. Are there particular stories you've shared of, of other women that have inspired you or given you strength or resilience just because of the challenges that they were able to overcome? For sure. Uh, A while ago, we interviewed Dr. Tracy Fanara, who is an environmental scientist, and getting to hear about her background really motivated me to pursue the sciences and STEM. So many times you might hear stories um, and you hear women hear stories of the neglect or disrespect that might come in working in the field of STEM. But when we spoke to Dr. Tracy Fanara, she really highlighted that the females in the STEM community are a true empowering community that wants you to succeed. And that even though it might be easy to go into things like business or marketing, STEM and STEM research helps build the foundation to improve things in the long term. Like you know that your actions today will be impacting um, the lives of many in the future. And so that was really gratifying for me to hear, especially since for me personally, I had my own doubts about being a woman in STEM or going into that type of field. Yeah. Ashlyn, so is there a a particular person or show, movie, book that's kind of dear to you that made you feel really seen and inspired as a a young Asian American woman? 
Um, I think one of the first, you know, real representation I saw on screen was um, like for me it was Bao, which was like a little Disney short about you know a kid and her mom and how it was you know how the she kind of grew up and how they grew apart but then they came back together and um it was all just like in like a five minute little short but it was so touching to me because it was like the first time I had seen like my own culture kind of represented on screen and this was back in like a couple years ago so I was a little younger back then but um I, you know, love seeing that. And I, even today, like, I would rewatch that short all the time because I thought it was just, like, really cute and also, like, a really great way to, you know, represent our culture and talk about, you know, just a deeper story. Um, and so, I, yeah, I really like that little Disney short. Catherine Howe, producer of today's segment, student at Crystal Springs Upland School and member of KQD's Youth Advisory Board. I uh, want to throw this question to you. What, Aside from these two brilliant women that you're on the show with right now, who else has sort of, or, or what else has inspired you uh, in the work that you're doing? I think that a lot of other things that have inspired me are like actors like Sandra Oh and Gemma Chan who have been in big shows and big um, movies. Like I know that Sandra Oh um, has came and protested um, and kind of seeing her just in on the big screen and also being able to speak up and be part of like protest and actively encouraging the community to stand up and raise their voice has been really inspiring for me. Mm-hmm. And knowing that they are taking actions to um, further representation um, in the community and during the pandemic, um, just raising the voices in our community. Yeah. How, how does it make you feel when you see Sandra Oh able to kind of navigate the world, both of kind of, you know, stardom as well as activism? I think it's made me feel um, a lot of pride um, seeing someone who looks like me. Um, it also encouraged me to stand up more and use my voice and share my story um, and encourage our community to do the same and also you know like have this conversation that we are having right now yeah yeah well thank you all so much for being your own inspiring people and images to others in this world. We've been talking with Asian American youth who are using art and activism to push back against Asian hate. We've been joined by Ashlyn So, a teen fashion designer and activist uh, here in the Bay Area. Thanks for joining us, Ashlyn. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We've also been joined by Alyssa Montiagudo, co-founder of So She Can, a youth-led organization educating and empowering BIPOC women. Thank you, Alyssa. Thank you so much. And Catherine Howe, couldn't have done it without you, quite literally producer of today's segment, member of KQD's Youth Advisory Board, and a student at Crystal Springs Upland School. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy I got to do this. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, 
the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.